W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I am your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Today, I am joined in the studio by Colin Christopher from the Islamic Society of North America. Assalamu alaikum, Colin. Alaikum assalam, Jack. Thanks for having me. All right. And also with us is Cassandra Lawrence from the Shoulder to Shoulder campaign. Good morning to you, Cassandra. Good morning, Jack. We are ready to rock and roll and ruminate about Ramadan this morning. Colin's been up for like five hours already. So before he starts to fade on us, let's get into some interfaith-ish. So, Colin, you're a white guy. That's right. Yep. That's how I'm going to start this professional interview. You're a you're a white guy. Pretty white. Yep. And uh, with a last name like Christopher, I would guess that on the on the streets, people probably wouldn't tag you as an obvious choice for being a card carrying Muslim. Am I right about that? I, I get that look a few times. Yeah. <laughs> and we're we're also about at the uh, the same age. So, you know. Um, that means that you're probably you were probably in college or a little bit after when 9/11 happened, yeah. Am high I school, that late, right? late high school, late yeah. high school. Okay, so did that did that happen at around the time that you converted to Islam? Tell us a little bit about about that story. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, parts of the world where a lot of Muslims live kind of became more relevant to my daily life. Uh, during 9-11 and I, and I was I was sort of dismayed by uh, the military response and how Muslims were vilified and I, I never sort of bought into that rhetoric it was, mm-hmm. it was kind of confusing to me mm-hmm. as a high school I was kind of scratching my head um, but I, I think you know in many ways my journey started a little earlier when I was a kid um, I didn't grow up with a religious tradition in my family but I was always sort of in awe of the natural environment and that was sort of my gateway towards understanding the divine, the creator. Mm-hmm. And it was through that that kind of, I think, sparked the continuation of my journey. So the, the intellectual part of it sort of started in college. Um, I had a pretty negative perception of religious people and religion up through high school and then I got to college and I saw all this diversity I went to uh, a large urban well a diverse urban school and uh, my conceptions uh, about what religion was and who religious people were totally shifted mm-hmm. then I took a class my senior year called religions wage peace with professor Yeedy and this is where what school is at George Washington University okay we heard of that one yeah and it was it was just life-changing um, learning about the violent history of Buddhist monks, hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. No one ever talks about right, that, right? right? No one ever hears about, about that, right? And, and that just really shifted things for me. So from there, 
I I had the privilege of taking a, a backpacking trip uh-huh. from Pakistan to Hong Kong when I was my my uh, like I was like twenty three, twenty four. Oh, okay, that wasn't like a study abroad. Trip no, no, I was going to say that's a, you. You really reached into the uh, the pretty far out study abroad. If that's yeah, th- 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 this was a, a self study, if you will. Yeah, um, but still, okay. So you're okay. <clears throat> let me let me just understand this. So so you're in college around this time. This is the early two thousands, right? And you're studying different religions. It doesn't sound like you had a very favorable view of religion going into college, no, right? No. And so, you know, this is around a time when, when I mean, really, Americans, probably from, from backgrounds like yourself and myself, you know, didn't really have very much interaction with the Muslim community. And the first impression we get is this very negative um, 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 uh, presentation in the media of what it is to be Muslim, all these stereotypes and everything around terrorism and 9-11 and everything. And, and instead of buying into that, in which already you've got a basis for having a negative perception of, it sounds like, institutionalized religion and so forth, you're starting to go into a different way that actually gets you to the end result of, of accepting Islam for yourself, become, joining the Muslim community, becoming a Muslim. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure... Uh... <laughs> What went right, I guess, uh, in the early two thousands. It's amazing. But, it's really amazing. Uh, yeah. No, I, uh, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what I don't want to say. I just, I just didn't buy the, the frame. It, 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 it seemed phony to me. Okay, okay. And so, and so, tell us how is it that then you were able to get to Pakistan? How did that decision come about? Because it sounds like that was a formative. Part yeah. Of so your, you know, I, I, I worked some jobs over the summers or in college, saved some money, and had this sort of intention of. Um, just exploring the world beyond the classroom. And I had some friends who were from Pakistan. I visited Pakistan the year before, went to a wedding, ended up also being a funeral. So I Mm. had this amazing cultural experience and I wanted to just explore more. Um, And through that trip, I I gained uh, experiences around what faith means to different people. Buddhists, Hindus, Sikh, Baha'is, Jains, Christians, Jews, Muslims, mm-hmm. everyone. I mean, I went. I spent a lot of time in India. If you can't find it in India, it probably doesn't exist. <laughs> so I, that was it. Was amazing, and it was it was uh, really inspiring, really emotionally, deeply inspiring. Not not an intellectual process at all. Yeah. So so what was then? Was there a catalyzing moment then for you that said, "Okay, you're clearly a." You're very open to all of these different traditions, and and you're you, you have this eye-opening moment being able to travel to all these far-flung places and meet this diversity of peoples and so forth. So, what was it then that that helped you arrive then to this point of saying, "What I believe in my heart then is is that I'm Muslim." Yeah. So, I started practicing Buddhism actually. Okay. Um, and I came back to the U.S. And I didn't find a sense of community. I felt my, I saw myself, uh, you know, uh, meditating with groups of anonymous people in yoga studios at 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings, <laughs> largely surrounded by recently divorced women in their early 40s. Hmm. And it just I wasn't not, connect- scene. I, well, not my scene <laughs> as a 26, 25-year-old right. um, guy. And... <laughs> No offense to those listening who are recently divorced and in their early 40s. Um, Go to yoga. <laughs> I'm losing an audience, Jack. Uh, so, no, but seriously, um, 
I, I just was I needed community as well. And I didn't realize that early on that I it wasn't just about connecting with something that was deeper through quietness, but it was a community and I wanted a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of I kind of drifted and then I had the opportunity to uh, study in, in India and it was through meeting uh, Muslim Americans studying Urdu, the language Urdu mm-hmm. in India with me that kind of led me to uh, to Islam and to understanding uh, their own faith practice and inspired by their own faith practice that got me exploring the tradition more deeply and eventually uh, leading me to Jerusalem um, where I wanted to sort of explore uh, all the different faith traditions and their sites and their, their holy spaces and finally coming to the Dome of the Rock and having this really powerful spiritual moment where it seemed clear that God was calling me to to uh, to try this out. And I, funny enough, I, I, <laughs> I was in the Dome of the Rock. I was meditating in sort of the, the lower cavern where, where Muslims believe uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, descended um, and to, to actually have an encounter with God. Um, and it was that spot that he, he left uh, from. Um, and... I told God, I said, okay, I'll try this out. But, you know, it really would have been easier if I was just a Baha'i. <laughs> <laughs> I won't blame me there as a Baha'i. I mean, you know, sure. Do your thing. That's cool. But but I said, I'll try this out for a year, and we'll see what happens. And right. nine years later, I'm, I'm still giving it a go. Okay, mm. interesting. Okay, so that was nine years ago. So right now we are, we're in the month of Ramadan. Ramadan, one of the pillars of Islam, right? And and a, a month of fasting from sunrise to sunset, time of, of purifying yourself, uh, mind, body, and soul. So what was it like for you that first year for you to participate in Ramadan? Um, an exploratory process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was it hard? Was, was it something that you'd experienced before doing fasting? for? Yeah, I mean, it was time? August, I believe, so it was difficult. Oh, wow, um, okay. And I think I, I was, I believe I was at home in Madison, Wisconsin with family mm-hmm. uh, for most of it. And, you know, my parents were terrified. They thought I was going to die of thirst. <laughs> they were convinced that there was something really wrong with this. And they even consulted our next door neighbor doctor about not well, your drink, next door neighbor not was drinking. a Muslim? No. Oh, okay. but like, oh, oh, a doctor. Okay. Is it okay? I just, I just assumed that the doctor was also a Muslim. Gotcha, Jack. You know, gotcha. That, no, I'm just, you know, that's usually people are like, oh, I never knew a Muslim. Well, how about, you know, no, Dr. This, Aziz? This guy was, was, was very much not a Muslim, but, you know. Uh, but he he said, uh, well, you know, um, not drinking water, probably not a good idea, but I think he'll be he'll be alive mm-hmm. come sunset. Okay. And sure enough, I was alive right. for 30 days straight, and my parents slowly got used to it. Right. But so no other support system, no other. Muslim I mean, there was there were friends, there? but I didn't have a strong support system in Madison that first Ramadan. Interesting. Since then, obviously, my community has grown, and sure. I have you know, been blessed with a lot of great people around me. Yeah. And so, you know, one of those great people is your lovely wife. You're recently married. And uh, your your wife's family background is where she, she's her from Brooklyn, from? and her family is from Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Okay. So, um, what are some of the traditions then that you all have in your household now? Are there things that she's brought with her into the household? Are there things that you're combining and creating together for Ramadan? 
Yeah, um, we hosted some friends last night. Oh, um, we like decorating the house. Um, we often uh, share sahur, which is the the sort of breakfast meal before mm. first light when yeah. the fast begins. That's a bit more of a heavy lift than the fast breaking dinner. At it the can end be of the difficult. Day. Yeah, uh, so folks are coming. They're rolling in at like four a.m. Yeah, well, we don't generally host for that. Some people do have parties, but uh -huh. they're in their early twenties, and we're. We're in past that stage a bit. Um, You're not going to the IHOP with all the no, folks? No. Yeah, we used to do the IHOP thing, but we, we've graduated on to oatmeal and peanut butter and a glass of water. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that, that's, that's generally what I, what I go with. Okay. Um, but uh, it's, it's uh, how do I, how do I, Ramadan is something that I sort of get worried about. And then when it's here, I really enjoy it. And then it's gone so fast. Um, mm. and, and you miss it. Mm. You really, really miss being in the month. And so we're right in the middle. Right. The moon is full these days. And yep. so you can you just look up in the sky and you know you know what day it is. Uh, you just look to see the sign. Great. So uh, it's, it's going well. Great. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to come back to Colin mm -hmm. in a bit. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on Tacoma Radio. We've been talking with Colin Christopher from the Islamic Society of North America. My other guest is Cassandra Lawrence from Shoulder to Shoulder. Cassandra, so, you know, I'm surprised now when I think about it, but when I was growing up, I never actually knew any Muslims. I, I knew maybe one or two in college, and even then, really the only significant relationships, friendships that started to develop was, was when I was in my 20s, when I really started to meet more people and, and see the diversity of expressions um, in the Muslim community. And I'm curious, you know, what was your background like? How was, how was your um, uh, upbringing? Um, how did that prepare you for, for all the work that you do yeah. now in an interfaith context? Yeah, so I grew up in California, uh, Southern California and then Northern California, but pretty much white suburbia. Mm -hmm. So just a lot of white people around. Mm -hmm. um, attended uh, dance ranches and uh, rodeos, that kind of white people. Mm -hmm. Like, it was great. Um, but, yeah, not a lot of religious diversity that I knew of. Okay. There may have been some that mm -hmm. I wasn't aware of, but was not on my radar at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was also privileged to be uh, attending and going to churches even irregularly who were very focused on social justice and on being the hands and feet of God. Mm -hmm. And so these, these are churches that your family was a part of or yes. that you would go and visit? Oh, no, okay. that my family was a part Got of. It. And so it was very well um, grounded into me that my role in this earth is to help bring about the beloved kingdom, to help bring about the kingdom of God here, mm -hmm. meaning to help help with poverty, to um, get to know my neighbor, to help alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. We can get and, behind that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that was really like my spiritual grounding of even though within whiteness, that was what I brought up. So that when I went to college, um, again, to university away, I also like, became aware of so many different people and had a dorm full of like I went to a um, University of British Columbia in Vancouver oh, and uh, the dorm housing the regular school housing was full and so I applied for this um, seminary that had dorms open to undergraduates and I thought this would be great there's going to be like Taze prayer and this <laughs> my mom was like really excited and then I show up and there's Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs and uh, other Christians wow. and other people of no faith at all, uh -huh. like all sharing the dorms because 
also they were also kicked or kicked out or they didn't have like the dorm housing on campus uh -huh. like with the regular university and all so... the kids with some sort of strange religious practice that that they needed to <laughs> observe outside of the normal college conditions pretty much so yeah. it was great like yeah. i like um learned how to dance um gujarati and how to like um learned about bindis and naan and so much deliciousness awesome. um and so it was there that I really started like understanding different religions, like as a lived practice uh -huh. with my friends. Um, and would you say that that's the formative experience then that prepared you for a professional career then doing interfaith uh, advocacy? No, it was actually before I went to college, I was 19 and our church area youth, uh, our Jord Jordanian Palestinian um, Christian pastor, led a group of youth to Israel and Palestine. Mm. This was just before the second Intifada, like mm. the summer before. Mm. And so we went to all the usual holy sites and we also visited um, the Hebron um, on the West Bank and visited Christian peacemakers there where um, they took us through, like there's a there's a vegetable market there that was uh, mentioned in the, um, the Camp David Peace Accords to be opened. It was okay. still closed. Huh. Um, and we sat on top of the roof of, of their apartment building while there were um, uh, IDF soldiers uh, pacing on other roofs watching this group of youth hanging out. And we learned about the history of that community, um, the hundreds of years of history of that community. And I just didn't understand. I came from this like white bread, middle class upbringing where I didn't, I sort of remembered the first Iraq war mm -hmm. as a kid because mm -hmm. we had military um, around us in San Diego. Okay. But um, I didn't really understand war. I didn't really understand why people were fighting each other. I was like, doesn't everybody just worship the same God? Mm. Like, I just really didn't understand. And what I now know about myself is I really don't like not understanding something. <laughs> and so like in school, I just kept studying religion. Mm. I sort of didn't mean to become a religious studies uh, major, but those were all the classes I kept taking. Yeah. So yeah. starting with like religion 101 to um, then focusing on Islam and Judaism and then the history of the Middle East conflict, mm. um, finished undergrad and still didn't have a good enough answer. Yeah. I was like, I still don't understand. Um, but what started happening while I was studying in university in Vancouver was that I started realizing how much I could learn about my own religion and my own faith practices by studying other people. Mm -hmm. And so like understanding how in Islam, thinking about, um, that there's when, when we would do architecture and design, that there would be these beautiful mosaics these complex designs, but they would always make sure to put in an imperfection because mm. they knew that only God could be perfect, that even humans, even if we strove towards it, couldn't be perfect. Mm -hmm. And that really started me really understanding God out through the lens of so many different religious traditions that enriched my own experience and understanding of God. Mm -hmm. um, well, it sounds like the, the bug bit pretty hard there, and I'm not surprised at all because you're one of these people that showed up in D.C. however many years ago it was, I can't remember yeah, how six. many, six years ago, and then suddenly was just everywhere all at once. Everywhere you look, Cassandra's on, on the interfaith scene working with everybody <laughs> and everything. So. Um, if you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM, streaming live at TacomaRadio.org. We're talking with 
Cassandra Lawrence of Shoulder to Shoulder, and Colin Christopher with the Islamic Society of North America. So Colin, like Cassandra, since you arrived in D.C., you've worked with a number of different groups. You've worked with Green Muslims, which is a group that organizes locally to encourage more eco-friendly community behaviors. You've worked with Dar al-Hijra, which is, I believe, one of the largest Muslim uh, congregations in the country. And now uh, you've, you're working with ISNA. So tell us a little bit about your current role as director of ISNA's Office for Interfaith and Community Alliances. And, and what's ISNA's approach, basically, to building those type of interfaith alliances? Yes, yeah, so our office started about 10 years ago uh, here in D.C. Um, the, the foundation of ISNA goes back decades, um, largely uh, from immigrant-based Muslims who came over, were in graduate school, were trying to find community, um, and, and trying to understand how to, how to make this country their own and make it a, an authentic uh, experience for them mm -hmm. as Muslims. Um, interestingly, the, the history of ISNA also highlights kind of some of the, the challenges as a country that we still have with racism. I mean, even to this day, many mosques are still segregated. Uh, black Muslims have been, you know, here for over 400 years. Um, the first here, not on their own volition, but were brought here and enslaved by uh, by people. But there have been Muslims here for a long time. So when immigrant Muslims came over, largely in the, in the 60s and the 70s, there, were, there was already a Muslim community, but there was not a lot of interaction. So Islam was sort of born out of that. Um, and now we're, we're a bit, bit more inclusive, but we still, have, we still have ways to go in that respect. Our office in D.C. works to build bridges with other faith communities and work on issues of common concern, poverty, um, homelessness, um, health care, climate change, gun violence prevention, kind of a long list of issues that, that affect our entire country. And we bring our faith lens to those conversations, and we advocate on the Hill uh, with elected leaders and, and really trying to highlight how our faith communities, all of them, um, speak to this this idea of, of bringing about a world where people have human dignity, basic mm -hmm. human dignity at the very, at the very least. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we've been doing that for 10 years, and it's, it's been an opportunity also for a lot of people in our community to understand the political process and to engage at, at a different level than they're, they're probably used to. So it sounds like it's, it's both a, a, a way of presenting the Muslim community to the broader American community, but also for, to, to help the Muslim community internally to advocate for itself, to, as you said, learn how to talk to elected leaders and and I assume get training and, and exactly that yeah advocacy. we do we do trainings on faith-based advocacy um, we do uh, a lot of different outreach at, at the community level and yeah it's 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 really an opportunity for many young folks as well to to get involved and and if they want to explore a career in advocacy or policy we provide a platform for that great Right. And so, Cassandra, actually, before I wrangle or, or when I wrangled the two of you for today's show, I mm -hmm. didn't actually realize that you're actually sharing the same office space. So it yes, was actually it was a twofer. Um, uh, and your job with Shoulder to Shoulder um, is working in cooperation with ISNA. So tell us a little bit about how 
how Shoulder to Shoulder operates and, and the work that you're doing with ISNA and other interfaith partners. Yeah, so Shoulder to Shoulder really is an interreligious campaign to address anti-Muslim bigotry. It was founded in 2010 when a number of faith leaders got together during the height of a particularly unhelpful um, peak of anti-Muslim uh, bigotry and rhetoric that was really sweeping the airwaves. And all you heard was rhetoric around the, the um, Quran burnings that were happening in Florida, and then also the rhetoric around the lower Manhattan Islamic Center that was being built. And these faith leaders got together and said, let's make a public statement and let's help change the, the public rhetoric around this. And ISNA was a founding member of that and continues to be on the steering committee and have um, we share office space, which has been really great. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that some of the things that we do is like right now we're doing the United States of Love Over Hate Ramadan campaign, okay. which is also to help change the rhetoric. So there was this great story by Hannah Alam from the BuzzFeed talking about how in 49 states they found politicians who publicly said anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric in their campaign stuff. And so these are people who are on record. Mm -hmm. And I think the outlier was Utah. Utah. Right? Utah yeah. Utah was the one where there was nothing on record. Yeah. And there's a there's been a follow up article about why Utah mm -hmm. was the exception. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so this campaign is really to help tell the narrative that there are there are actually more people who will and are celebrating together with Muslims in their neighborhood and joining in like this holy time of Ramadan to both remember their own um, spiritual traditions as well as to remember their communities. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming together both as like first timers as well as like uh, as a part of years of, of relationship building. Um, and so that's one of the things that we do together is helping identify those interfaith iftars. Great, great. So one of the things that I hear from Muslim leaders reflecting on, on the past 10 years or so is that Muslim communities were not really well prepared to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. or with interfaith interfaith partners because they were relatively quiet and, as Colin was saying, often immigrant communities um, who hadn't really put a big emphasis on doing a lot of public outreach um, and, and introductions. And unfortunately, the fallout from 9-11 really framed things such that Muslims had to then work not only to quickly build those alliances, but also repair a lot of the damage done by misinformation that was swirling around, as you were saying, Cassandra, mm -hmm. in, the, in the media and so forth. So I'm curious how the two of you, have, who as young leaders have come up through um, this time um, since then, uh, working both within and outside the Muslim community, how do, you, how do you feel things have gone and where do you see these efforts going um, in the coming decade? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we've gotten better at is identifying the sources of the misinformation. So there's been some really great source work done by people out of Georgetown and at a number of like think tanks as, as well as the Southern Poverty Law Center on what they like term the Islamophobia industry. So that there is a concerted organized effort that is well funded that whose goal is to um, own the, the conversation on who who Muslims are and what Islam is in this country. So we've become really good at trying to get that information and what's the rhetoric on the other side. Um, and Colin, I know that you have been talking with Catherine about like um, rapid response stuff and how we support people doing this work who are getting um, death threats um, who from having relationships and friendships with Muslims. Yeah, yeah, there, there's... Um... 
some pretty brave people uh, who are partnering together, Christians and Muslims and, and, and other faith traditions, uh, who are going around the country, rural areas largely, and speaking with audiences about their, their experiences and their, their stories and their traditions, and, and facing a lot of pushback yeah. from their own communities. Um, uh, when I say own communities, largely the pushback is coming from the Christian communities. Uh, most of the Muslim community is, is very supportive of interfaith effort. Um, but I, I also want to sort of go back to um, the Muslim community piece. The, the Muslim community is crazy diverse. Mm -hmm. um, we're the, the most diverse religious community in the U.S., a third black, a third of South Asian origin, and a third of other, other ethnic backgrounds. We're the youngest uh, religious community. 50% uh, is under 30. Mm -hmm. And we're the fastest growing religious community. So anything I say, I'm bound to have an example that will counter exactly yeah, what I'm yeah, saying. You're definitely so, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely wrong. Uh, so let's just start with that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there are so many different segments of the Muslim community um, that, you know, s some have been engaged for decades and some have been hiding in a corner for decades mm -hmm. and some just got here a few weeks ago. So we're really dealing with incredible tapestry of this country. Um, and it creates a lot of opportunities and it creates a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Muslim community is very much America, mm -hmm. which is a statement that you probably don't hear too often. And sometimes it's even hard for me to even think about, but it, it it's true. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's, 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 it's never a boring day hmm. to be in the Muslim community. Let's just, let's just say that. And so when you, when you mm -hmm. go back to your corner of America where you grew up, you know, you're, you're now almost 10 years into being a part of the, the Muslim community. Um, you know, as we were, we're saying at the beginning, you can, you can, sort of be undercover because you're you're not immediately identified right so you i'm sure that you're privy to some of those conversations that that you that that people don't realize that they're in the presence of somebody who is is muslim so i'm i'm curious when you go back home when you talk to some of the people in in your neck of the woods do you feel like the needle's been moved by this advocacy work do you feel like some of those conversations are are having an impact in in places where the muslim community isn't maybe as known or present? Uh, yeah, I would say that um, the last two years, especially um, during the campaign and then under this current administration, have really highlighted the underlying uh, white supremacist I notion of mm -hmm. so much of our culture here in the United States that a lot of people weren't aware of before. Mm -hmm. I, I talked to a lot of my parents' friends, for example, and you know, they they tell me things like, oh, I just I just didn't know it was this bad. And you know, a lot of African Americans have been sort of <laughs> talking, having these conversations for I don't know hundreds of years. And a lot of uh, a lot of white folks are kind of I think waking up a little bit to the realities that a lot of people of color have been facing for a while. So I, I see the anti-Muslim sentiment really as an outpouring of a larger narrative of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the latest flavor of the day. Um, and uh, and then, of course, if you're a black Muslim and you're a woman and you wear hijab, you've got a lot of a lot of challenges on a daily basis to deal with. I, I will also say, though, that 
um, while the waking up is is occurring in a lot of communities across the country, um, I still get the you know the random guy in the plane making anti-Muslim comments and kind of you know uh, thinking that I'm on board with him too. And little does does he know that uh, he's he's talking about me. Yeah, mm. a lot of work to do. We've been talking with Colin Christopher of the Islamic Society of North America and Cassandra Lawrence of the Interfaith Advocacy Project Shoulder to Shoulder. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM and TacomaRadio.org. As a non-commercial radio station, WOWD Tacoma Radio relies on your support to pay for rent, equipment, engineering, audio production training, and other operational costs. You can donate your support to us securely online at TacomaRadio.org. Thanks to all of you for your generous and very necessary financial support. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and I'm joined by Colin Christopher of the Islamic Society of North America and Cassandra Lawrence of the Interfaith Advocacy Project, Shoulder to Shoulder. We've already discussed the work and background of each of our guests in our first half hour. And now for the second half of our show, we'll flip the script and turn the mics over to our guests to give them the floor and ask anything they've wanted to know about each other's traditions and beliefs, things that they may have never asked, never known to ask, or just flat out misunderstood. And as I mentioned earlier, I didn't realize when I booked the two of you that you actually work out of the same office space. So perhaps these are conversations that are happening anyway regularly during the week. But even with close collaborators, we know that when it comes to interfaith dialogue, there is always more to explore. So with that, I'll turn it over to my two guests, Cassandra and Colin. Thanks, Jack. Well, I just wanted to return. This is Cassandra. I just wanted to return quickly to a comment that you made, Colin, just before about um, the nationalism and the white uh, supremacy rhetoric, uh, this being really a uh, the Islamophobia and the anti-Muslim rhetoric being an outgrowth, a recent, a new flavor of the month, as you said, of racism. Uh, and this is something I have feel, felt particularly called to of like trying to understand the intersection between racism and religious bigotry and especially um, anti-Muslim rhetoric and really understanding how the interfaith movement in the United States was really grounded in some of this like Christian white supremacy. And so I don't know if you have like thoughts about like how the movement is moving forward or not, like how how we're becoming better at being like all, you know, I don't know. It's just, I just wanted to come back to that for a moment. Um, yeah. Um, well, I, I will also say that <clears throat> while it's the, the latest flavor of the month, it's also been popular flavor in the mm -hmm. past as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's just sort of reigniting, I think, some, uh, some tropes from the past. I mean, I, I, I was just struck by, you know, reading into uh, 19th century, 20th century European history, learning like that Salvador Dali was a total Islamophobe, mm. <laughs> you know, like who knew love is work, but that doesn't make me feel too good when I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, really 
appreciating his artistic talent. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was just anti-Muslim sentiment was so so steeped in Western culture mm -hmm. historically um, uh, from the Crusades and, and other interactions that it, it it just kind of was reignited. Um, and, and in terms of interfaith dialogue and interfaith work in the United States, I'm not really sure where it's headed, but it seems to be more of something that's necessary for us to move forward mm -hmm. in a fashion that um, that where our ideals are as a country. Yeah. Um, and and I do think that some of the most important social movements in in the the history of this country have come from a place of faith. Mm. Um, and I think we should recall that. And I think of the Poor People's Campaign going on right now, and it's coming from a place of faith. Um, and I think there's 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 a, a reflective opportunity in traditions, uh, religious traditions that other spaces in the country maybe 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 they don't have in the mm. same way. Yeah, and I think too, like I said, I've done some research on the history of the interfaith movement, and also the history of social movements, and so. One of the things I didn't know when I was doing that research was uh, there's this famous triangle shirtwaist factory fire that happened in New York in the early 1900s that killed, I don't remember, like about 100 or so people. And what I didn't know was that the most of the people that were in that factory were recent Jewish immigrants. And that so that in the Jewish times in New York, uh, you could see like personal tell, like stories of people talking about that fire and like talking about seeing people from the streets up in the in the burning building, knowing that they couldn't save them. And so like how in the 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 tenements and in these like tight urban living environments you had like poor jewish immigrants with like um catholics and other people from eastern europe europe and southern europe uh, really interacting with each other and then organizing so organizing to have a labor movement in that early 1900s to get better uh, working conditions and better policies around um, standard of living uh, there's a great tenement museum in in new york city that just astounds you of like how much how tightly people lived in those spaces um, and their interactions they had so but yeah, so um, I, I would sort of switching topics. I'd love yeah, to yeah, learn yeah. <laughs> about how you yeah, you talked about constantly asking questions of why and and wanting to know why things are the way they are. What what led you to seminary? I imagine there was a lot of why involved that led <laughs> you to seminary, but how how has that shaped your practice and how how has that shaped sort of your work? Moving forward, uh, how, what, what do you foresee? Yeah, so I did. I started seminary at Wesley Theological School here in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in August of last year. The first year went by real fast. Um, and one of the reasons that I decided to go to seminary and take that leap was this feeling that I, I, I loved doing, I felt called to do peace work, to do peace building, to do justice work. But I also felt called to now become more grounded in my own theological traditions and history around doing that peace work and to also learn how to focus my voice and how to be stronger in my voice. And seminary is really a place that 
it does this weird thing where you have to, in the beginning of your paper, say, like, what is your background and why, so that you can know as a writer what you are bringing to the text. And so that as a reader, you can say, oh, this is a white girl from California. So these are her, like, you know, some of her experiences that are informing how she reads the text. And then also bringing in some of the other theologians and people so that you have the different voices. So we have these great um, uh, commentaries that are from, that have collections of people from Pakistan and from Korea and from uh, the United States, from different like immigrant and uh, different economic backgrounds talking about like a certain piece of text. And so being able to learn and see that lens of how all these different people around the world are reading the same little bit of scripture differently has really helped me better understand how we can all be reading the same problem also with that same kind of difference and become better if we all start like working together to understand the problems um, yeah. together. And so that's one of the ways seminary has really started changing me is understanding the interdependence. I think you talked about it when you were talking about um, Islam and coming into community that you couldn't do it by yourself. And so this whole idea that's very steeped in uh, I would say colonialism and um, of saying that there is one idea and one way and one problem and one way to interpret that problem is part of the problem. <laughs> saying like, no, there is a problem and we can all feel it and experience it differently. But there's actually so many pieces of the problem that we need everybody looking at it to understand how we're going to like resolve the problem. Do you think that more people are interested in seminary today because of sort of the, I don't know how to describe this, but there, I feel like the conflicts uh, in our society are maybe because of social media and technology are more apparent to the average person, even if they don't live in diverse communities. Uh, there's a sense that the challenges that we do have as a country are more public in nature. Mm. Do you sense that that is driving people to explore spirituality? Um, I, I don't know. Do you get that sense at seminary? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, the numbers of people going to seminary is definitely in decline. Uh, and so, but I think it's the same thing that drives people to seminary now as it did then, but maybe there's just fewer of us doing it, of wanting to be a sort of a chaplain. For me, the public space is still very important. And so being that like chaplain, that peace building figure, peace um, within public spaces, especially within conflict um, spaces, is really what's driving me and a lot of the people that I know to come to seminary. So to become more deeply grounded in our theology, to hone our skills as public speakers, as well as um, uh, pastors to be able to listen and to build relationships with people. And so it's really foundational about building community together. And so, and there is really a deep need still to build community because we think we're building community when we have 800 friends on Facebook. Uh, but. I, that doesn't make me any closer to 800 people. <laughs> I just get to see all of their updates, uh, which is great. And I love that too. But I think that need is still to build community. And now I think fewer people know how to do that. 
Uh, and so we need more teachers of how to build community. Yeah, it, it seems to me like the some of the scandals and some of the injustices and inequities of uh, formalized faith institutions have driven people from exploring spirituality. It mm -hmm. seems like that, uh, at least maybe in younger generations, uh, in my experience, seeing people not explore those questions mm. as deeply because of those uh, those factors. But I also sense that there is this yearning in society for a community because of this isolation. Mm -hmm. And so it's this interesting dynamic of, I don't know, I, I, do, do you get that sense? Uh, do you, I don't know, what, what are you seeing? I mean, I, I think that people are still exploring those questions, but without the prescribed language for it. If they don't grow up within a, a, a community or a faith community or a philosophical community, then they may not have the language to describe it, but they're still struggling with it. Um, studying even like in seminary, I love my school, in studying we, we will read like rap biographies of rappers growing up in like the Bronx in New York and listening how like they have Jay-Z listening about like how he formed community and was trying to understand what was going on in his community and his outlet became his music, his writing. And so that same thing is still happening today. Uh, I think that the move away from institutions, I like to say that the churches were really the canary in our cultural coal mine and that we people have grown less and less confident in institutions as the vehicle to bring about the utopian society that we all were told was going to happen um, and that has now like transferred over into our political systems and into um, cultural institutions as well and so i think that that's not a, a piece that's isolated to churches yeah, it's interesting. I, so in the Muslim community, um, there's a yeah. number of young Muslims uh, in the city who do not associate with a particular Muslim institution, don't go to a mosque. Some call them unmasked. <laughs> um, and these third spaces are emerging. I think of neighborhood halakas as an example, which is uh, really uh, a few cities across the country where uh, young Muslims are gathering halakha, meaning sort of like a circle of remembrance and sort of a reflective group mm. uh, within their own neighborhood getting together at people's houses um, and, and this kind of becoming a, a space. The challenge is the consistency, especially with sort of younger folks at least uh, finding the resources, finding the space. So it, it's a difficult topic because I think institutions provide a sense of consistency and foundation and security for people to plug into and yet there are these third spaces also emerging that provide things that a lot of these uh, historical institutions don't provide. Mm. I think we're, at least in the Muslim community, we're still at this kind of intersection point, and it's interesting. Yeah. So guys, I'm gonna have to step in there and wrap things up, but I think that's a, a good a good <laughs> point to, to leave it on looking at the future, wondering about ways to build community um, and and I wanted to um, open up the the opportunity for Colin Christopher of the Islamic Society of North America to to give us some um, resources that you guys might have if people are interested in following up 
on some of the topics that we discussed? Yeah. So uh, if you're going to be in Houston, Texas uh, over Labor Day weekend, we're having our annual convention. It's going to be a great. It's going to uh, be hot. Yeah, it's going to be hot, but <laughs> plenty of air conditioning in Texas. Let me tell you, I was just there. Um, you can, but uh, you can follow us uh, at, at Isna HQ on Twitter. Uh, check us out at isna.net. And if you're on the Hill, come visit our office in the United Methodist Building where we share uh, space with a number of different faith institutions, including Shoulder to Shoulder Campaign. There you go. Interfaith all day, every day. So every uh, day. Cassandra Lawrence of uh, Shoulder to Shoulder Campaign, what about for people who are interested in getting involved with some of this advocacy work, particularly when it comes to advocating for our Muslim brothers and sisters? Yeah, so we have, uh, right now we have our campaign, United States of Love Over Hate. You can learn about that on our website, shouldertoshouldercampaign.org, and uh, also on Facebook and uh, Twitter as well. Uh, and we we have some resources, some guidebooks. We have a really great guidebook that we put together with the People's Supper and with Seven Fast for to do more intentional conversations at these iftars so that it's not just uh, beautiful panel discussions with some wonderful talking uh, folks at the front of the room so that you can get to know better the people sitting right next to you every day. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. You've been listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I've been your host, Jack Gordon. And again, we've been talking with Colin Christopher of the Islamic Society of North America and Cassandra Lawrence of Shoulder to Shoulder Campaign. Thank you both for being here with us this morning. And uh, Ramadan Mubarak to both of you. Ramadan Kareem. Thanks, Cassandra. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Jack. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests for joining me today and thank my fellow interfaith astronauts, my team behind the scenes, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller. And as always, a special shout-out to Jeff Philosopher for hooking us up with our great theme music. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your time with us. Let us know if there's interfaith-ish you wish to dish by writing us an email at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, June 16th at 9 a.m. with our next live episode. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week streaming online at tacomaradio.org. Go there for a full program schedule. Up next is Borderlines with Bobby Hill on the People's Voice of Choice, Tacoma Radio, WOWD 94.3 FM.